Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to let you know about our fantastic new sponsor, Beckett's Gin. Right now, we're tucking into this mm. delicious spirited dry gin it's absolutely fantastic it's lovely it's really strong we're doing it as a gnt but honestly you can also do it straight it's absolutely perfect it's super smooth and it goes really well with cocktails if you need some cocktail inspiration you can go to the beckett's website they've got some fantastic information there and really they've got just a fantastic range of gin products there's also the london dry gin which is your kind of classic gin it's made with juniper berries from box hill in surrey with mint from Kingston-upon-Thames and all kinds of other fantastic ingredients. It's really top-notch stuff. They've also got a slow gin, which goes really nice neat, or with cocktails. And there's also the barrel-aged slow gin. Now, this is a new product. It's basically a slow gin that has been allowed to sit for three years in a oak bourbon barrel. And what that really does is it brings out some of the sort of more vanilla flavors, some caramel and some coffee to add to the lovely slow taste. Now, one thing I've really got in my sights for Christmas is the Beckett's Variety gift set. This features three of the main gins. It's got the London Dry Gin, the Spirited Gin, and the Slow Gin, all in miniature. So it makes a fantastic gift for a friend or a loved one, or you might just fancy it for yourself if you want to try all of the flavors. The best thing about all this is that as a Spiked Podcast listener or viewer, you can get 20% off all the fantastic products I've just talked about. It's really easy to do. You just go to beckettsgin.co.uk forward slash spiked. That's B-E-C-K-E-T-T-S-G-I-N.co.uk forward slash spiked. That's beckettsgin.co.uk forward slash spiked for your 20% off. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever this week, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to have back, it's been too long, Spike's columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the establishment's war on GB News, Suella Braverman versus multiculturalism and the collapse of the Black Lives Matter grift. Right, so the knives are out for GB News ever since Lawrence Fox made some very ill-advised comments earlier this week about the shagability of a female journalist. There's been calls for GB News to be referred to Ofcom, for it to be shut down as well in some circles. Tom, what have you made of this episode? I mean, as ever, you have to separate what sparks the controversy from the controversy itself, if you like. I mean, what Lawrence Fox said on Dan Wooten's show the other night was completely inexcusable. It was crass. It was sexist. It said far more about him than it did about the journalist he was trying to take the mick out of. And I don't think anyone is really defending him, certainly not yeah. GB News, who have suspended both him and Dan Wooten. They're investigating. They've apologized to the journalist in question. But the response to it, I think, has been really telling. As far as if anyone really thinks that the calls to shut GB News down, the calls for it to be reprimanded, um, the quite open discussions about how 
GB News basically has to be brought to heel has anything to do with that particular controversy itself. You're, you're just lying to yourself. It's yeah. quite clearly what has been the story with GB News ever since the beginning, even since before it came on air, which is there has been this concerted attempt and desire to get rid of it, to choke it at birth um, because of the fact that it's um, providing a perspective that the mainstream media doesn't like. And because of the fact that it, I think it kind of, it's a, it's an obvious challenger to the kind of mm. existing media setup. And we saw that articulated so glaringly really by Adam Bolton the other night on Newsnight when he was sat there and said that we have a quote, delicate media ecosystem in this country. And what GB News is trying to do is bust it up. Therefore, Ofcom should take it off air. I mean, it was the point in which the mask slipped. He said the quiet part out loud, however yeah. you want to put it. But I think that really showed that this was no longer about one presenter's sexist comments. Mm. This was about a pre-existing prejudice agenda, vendetta against GB News and what it represents, which is now being prosecuted with glee. And I think we need to be quite clear-eyed about what it is that's actually driving this. Definitely. Yeah, Alex, it's not just Adam Bolton who's called for it to be shut down. Caroline Noakes, also on the same Newsnight panel, weirdly said it should be taken off the air. Other MPs, Labour MPs have got involved saying it needs to be closed down. I mean, this is pretty scary. I mean, normally when you hear about, you know, TV channels being closed down by the state, that's usually from some sort of backward post-Soviet, you know, country, not not a liberal democracy like Britain. Well, the Newsnight panel was quite remarkable because you didn't have anyone on it who was defending GB News's right to exist. I mean, you know, Tom said it already, but the comments made by Fox and the reaction from Dan Whitton was it was just pathetic and disgusting. And but the you know the interesting thing is that actually conversation about that particular instance of sexism very quickly got shunted to the side and you were almost instantly talking about something much bigger mm. about GB News as a whole. And it was, I remember watching a clip from with Michelle Donnellan, the culture secretary, coming out and saying as if it was this sort of really brave statement, no, of course I won't boycott GB News. And you, you know, you do want to say to people, do you remember that the whole Russell Brand thing only just happened in which, you know, the BBC and Channel 4 were also implicated in instances of presenters, uh, you know, perhaps perhaps not quite comparable, but staying quite close to the wind when it comes to talking about women. You know, are you going to are you going to boycott the BBC and yeah. Channel 4? And let's face it, at this point, you know, I want to take several showers because it's you, the, the media is a pretty disgusting and seedy world, or it can be. Um, so there was a sort of like cognitive dissonance about all of this, about where you actually think this, you want this sort of... Um, this momentum to go. And, you know, we can sit here and say, you know, I have my favorite shows on GB News, like Andrew Doyle, big, you know, friend of Spike, writes for Spike a lot. And um, some of the others, there are those, there, there are others for whom neither politically nor morally I align with. But the whole point of having a, uh, you know, a broad spectrum of views and styles mm. in the world of broadcast journalism, news, whatever you want to call it, is surely a healthy thing. I mean, obviously, Spike has a vested interest in that because we want to um, push back against a lot of the biases and um, echo chambers that happen within the sort of, particularly within the sort of institutions that bitter Adam Bolton um, previously worked for. You know, there's there's a reason why we get on his nerves and why we get on the nerves of people like that. And GB News is inhabiting that kind of space. And I sort of at this point think if there is a room for a channel which asks different kinds of questions, which, you know, has a different kind of take, whether you politically agree with them or not, that's surely a sign of health within mm. this 
industry rather than it being the solution to one kind of pig on a channel making comments about a, a journalist that you shut it down and say everything's fine because we'll just have BBC Sky News and Channel 4. And and Tom, it does feel now more than ever, um, almost in reaction to GB News or, or and Talk TV and these kind of other sort of upstart channels, that the BBC is worse than it's ever been. Sky News is more uh, narrow than it's mm. ever been, you know, almost whether consciously or not kind of taking a side against them. Well, I think that's an interesting point because of the fact that one of the claims people try to make for why they should legitimately close GB News down, as they say, is that you're taking us down the route of America, you're engaging in this kind of partisan, polemical, kind of um, biased mm. form of media. I mean, that is the model that GB News follows, which is to say that they, um, it's not to say that it's um, shock jockey necessarily, but it's to say that their presenters are opinionated and yeah. that they rely therefore on the guests to provide the kind of balance that Ofcom requires. Um, it's not a brand new thing. Other stations have been doing it even before them. Um, and so you have this kind of, this claim, which is to say the problem is it's, it, it's bringing partisanship into news. We have the BBC model here where everything's wonderfully impartial, mm. all sides are listened to and whatever. Uh, anyone who has been watching BBC or Channel 4 over the course of the past few years know that is complete nonsense. I yeah. mean, at least GB News is, and their presenters respectively are explicit and open about what it is that their viewpoint are. What you've had, particularly since Brexit, with a lot of these supposedly impartial broadcasters um, is them still continuing to expound their own views, but under the thin guise of objectivity. I mean, we'll remember Emily Maitlis on Newsnight just doing this tirade against Dominic Cummings, Mm. which is she ended up actually getting reprimanded by BBC complaints for um, John Snow going to that pro-Brexit rally and saying, I've yeah. never seen so many white people in all my life, despite the fact he's gone to Glastonbury a few times. Which would Well, they've all left and set up this. their own shows in which they're doing almost exactly the same. They're, Mateless Ma, I yeah. mean, you know. They're unleashed. Finally, I know what the BBC people <laughs> think. I had no idea before. But that was the thing. That was the, that's, the, that's the kind of respectable claim, is that, yeah. oh, the, this is terrible. We need to clamp down on it. So I think it's just a reminder about the fact that, the again, GB News is effectively just providing a perspective, yeah. providing an opinion providing a platform for broadly speaking kind of anti-woke um often right of center but not exclusively sort of perspectives which aren't well served in the mainstream and that's what they're upset about they don't like the style they don't like the um sort of populist tone Mm. um and they're trying to come up with all these kind of moral reasons as to why it really shouldn't exist but really this is about trying to crush an organization which not only is attempting to threaten their business model but trying to hoover up their viewers and in some cases doing pretty well at that but also that is a challenge to their kind of moral and political dominance over broadcast journalism and news. And yeah. it, that's become so transparent now. I mean, even just this week, I mean, the Newsnight panel in discussion of GB News, as you alluded to earlier, Tom, no one defended GB News. Two of them wanted it to be crushed. The other one said it was, you know, veering towards the far right. There was a debate on um, climate change, um, you know, how, how we should handle net zero on Channel 4 News earlier this week between the environmentalist Chris Packham and the environmentalist Zach Goldsmith, you know, <laughs> basically competing with yeah. each other to see who can give the most grotesque extreme view that is a million miles away from the public from what the public thinks so the pretense of neutrality is just crazy well i mean also we have to you know state quite clearly that on that newsnight panel you had caroline noakes uh, you know a, an elected politician basically calling for the ruination or uh, closing down of you know a, a, a popular television channel it's, mm. that's an outrageous my favorite overreach. my favorite bit which said we should let ofcom do their thing yeah and if 
they don't shut them down. So the implication: yeah. we MPs should look at tightening the rules. <laughs> and everyone this is so explicit, you know. Remember when everyone rightly, as it happens, got their knickers in a twist about Nadine Dorries yeah. doing making similar moves of trying to encroach upon um, press freedom or you know the in, the kind of news industry. And that seems to be lacking in relation to the response to GB News. So obviously the principle of, um, you know, freedom for journalists and, you know, the press to do what they do is, is, doesn't apply to GB News. But the thing is, you don't have to be a fan of GB News in relation to this. I'm sure that actually, you know, after Fox's performance, um, a lot of people will have decided to switch off. And that is how things should work, that actually there's there's a level of kind of democracy and viewership. And, it, you know, I'm a fan of the Today programme. Uh, people laugh at me. Yeah, Spike readers will laugh at me about that, but I still am. But, you know, Nick Robinson comes out this week and does an interview where he says, the problem with, you know, our low viewership is not that we perhaps are a bit of an echo chamber or sometimes boring, um, but it's because there are you know people are, are switched off news and he yeah. basically pointed the finger and said the problem is you you don't care about the news enough so you don't like our high fluting show. Well, obviously GB News's viewership is challenging all of these big you know shibboleths and and muscling in on the territory because they do things a bit differently. And actually, if you were a, you know if you took seriously audiences and you actually were interested in not just having your show but you know communicating politics to people or entertainment or wherever it is you'd you'd have a different approach to your to your public to your audience and whatever you say about gb news i think they've got that right which is that they think about viewership and they think about what their audience wants and unlike other channels and other presenters they don't call for other Mm -hmm. stations to be shut down no exactly and i think that's one thing that's really come perfectly clear in the past couple of weeks as well and we were talking a bit about this in last week on the podcast with caroline dynage trying to get rumble and various social media companies mm. to purge russell russell brand or cut off his monetization or what have you is the remarkable tyrannical instincts of essentially centrist non-entities in yeah. public life ever since brexit the sort of explosion of the sort of woke phenomenon and the pushback to that from the public, all of these things which have kind of cropped up, which have really challenged their sort of gain sort of moral control over the narrative and so on, really challenged their views on so many different levels. They've just become so increasingly thin-skinned, authoritarian, again, trying to protect this delicate ecosystem, lest it be challenged by all of these brutish people. It's become so, so clear. But again, it's the casualness with which they do it, which is probably the most chilling thing. You can have a prominent member of parliament, you can have, again, prominent journalists even, who are basically calling for the end of media freedom just because they don't like the views that are being expressed. Mm -hmm. That's an outrageous position to be in, not least because they don't even seem to realise how outrageous it is that they're being in saying all that. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. 
Spiked is hiring. We're looking for a full-time corporate fundraising and business development manager to help take us to the next level. So if you have a background in fundraising, if you have experience developing donor and subscriber networks, and if you'd like to join a growing, dynamic, principal team, then this could be the perfect job for you. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash jobs. That's spiked-online.com forward slash jobs to find out more about the role and how to apply. The closing date for applications is Friday, the 27th of October. Best of luck. And now back to the show. So Home Secretary Suella Braverman delivered a major speech in Washington, D.C. earlier this week. She was taking pot shots at everything from illegal immigration to the refugee convention. But the thing that seems to have caused the biggest sort of media stir was her taking aim at multiculturalism. She said multiculturalism has failed. Now, Tom, I mean, the reaction to this was slightly surreal because a lot of people seem to have not actually understood what multiculturalism means. It has. It's been quite interesting in that respect because of the fact, I mean, first of all, whenever Suella Braverman says anything, there's always this unfortunate tendency towards kind of hysteria and extreme responses. Mm. There's all kinds of rhetoric she's engaged with over the years that I've found occasionally quite unsavory. But you, again, people catastrophize that. It was yeah. the most outrageous speech since Rivers of Blood and all this sort of stuff, which it was, it was a, it was a right wing. hate literally said that. Just Exactly. Way, That's just not to, me just riffing. For the, for yeah. the <laughs> Actually is what <laughs> yeah. was said. It was a right-wing kind of immigration restrictionist speech. This is not the craziest thing that's ever happened. But you're right. One of the things that was interesting about it was the fact that um, the multiculturalism aspect was really latched onto, and you saw a lot of very quite personalized responses to it, which is mm. to say, how can Suella Braverman say that multiculturalism is failed? You know, she's the descendant of Goan migrants. Um, she's married to a Jewish gentleman. She's the Home Secretary. Um, Rishi Sunak is our first Hindu Prime Minister, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, which you basically saw a succession of pretty experienced and pretty prominent journalists making a kind of fundamental schoolboy error in this discussion, which is to confuse uh, living in a multiracial, multi-faith society, which again, the vast majority of people have absolutely no problem with, with the policy of multiculturalism, the mm. state multiculturalism, the way in which you almost discourage integration, you celebrate difference, you not own, you fund community groups based around narrow sectional identities, you constantly kind of downgrade the sense of what brings us together and a kind of sense of shared values and missions and so on. This is a debate that's been rumbling on for decades and decades and decades, and yet they make this same kind of error, which I thought was telling insofar as you had all of these journalists bundling into a discussion which they clearly didn't know anything about mm. um, but I think was also quite depressing insofar as that used to be a much more live and kind of fruitful discussion there yeah. was a long tradition of what I think is the most powerful critique of multiculturalism which is a left-wing one which is still very much pro-immigration still very much about being internationalist and interested in people from around the world and so on but still recognizes that there is this such a thing or we should aspire to such a thing as kind of universalism and yeah. a shared sense of citizenship and all of these quite well, I thought quite kind of basic points. It's just gone out of the window now. So when everyone only raises this question, it's like, oh, they're just against immigrants and they want everyone to, as soon as they arrive, start eating toad in the hole and watch Coronation Street. That's not what this discussion is about. And yet that's the boneheaded level in which a lot of people seem to want to be able to discuss it. And, and Ella, I mean, what fact do you think Suella's own background, her own race plays in this? Because, you know, David Cameron came out and said multiculturalism has failed. Angela Merkel came out, you know, around... 10 years ago or so, mm. Angela Merkel before him said multiculturalism has failed, absolutely failed. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy has said it in France. All these like quite normal centre-right 
politicians, technocratic politicians, if anything. Mm -hmm. And yet when Suella says it, because of who she is, because of where she comes from, it provokes this hysteria. She's not allowed to say that. No, there is, there is a particular kind of fetish for being obsessed with what essentially brown female politicians say. It's, re- it's like that kind of crass and obvious. Um, there is, you know, we, we've covered on the Spike podcast many times the sort of quite ugly kind of accusations of whether it was Sajid Javid in previous instances or other ethnic minority politicians basically not siding with the political opinion that they're supposed to hold yeah. mm. because of their skin colour, because of their religion, because of their background. I mean, that kind of, you know, Tom is exactly right. People have mixed up multiculturalism and, and melting pot. And the, but the whole and you know the idea that we all sort of rub up together and we you know isn't it wonderful which it is that you can have you can eat you know seven different meals in a day and enjoy different cultures and dress differently and you know whatever experience things from all over the world. Um, but the whole point about multiculturalism is that it's actually the it's the opposite of yeah. melting pot because rather than us all being thrown in together and having an actually authentic process in which people citizens of a nation create a kind of with all their differences come together and form some kind of overarching universalism um what multiculturalism does is say don't interact with other cultures because that might dilute your uh, your Specialness sort of, of your authenticity, culture, yeah. yeah, and um, and what we must do is, you know, really, really focus on, and you, you know, you've seen this in things like the riots in Leicester, yeah. and you know, really focus on what makes you different rather than what brings you together. You know, obviously, Suella Braverman is right to say that multiculturalism has failed, but where she's completely lacking is in the Conservative Party having any sense of a shared value, any sense of, you know, things, you know, we could come up with it now in the back of a fag packet. It's not hard. You know, coalescing around that if you're a citizen of this nation, you believe in freedom of speech, Mm. you believe in tolerance, you believe in democracy. You know, these are things that we that could be really powerful if articulated properly. We'd have to deport half the editorial team at the Guardian. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Neither Conservative Party nor a Labour Party yeah. have any sense of how to communicate that, which could be really quite a powerful sort of idea of what it means to be a citizen of this nation, because they are, and yeah. however much Swilla Braverman is sort of using rhetoric around this, they are scared of <laughs> kind of talking about the idea of one nation with a set of values that yeah. people would come and sign up to. And I think that's the depressing thing in all of this, which is that all of the sort of panic about her discussion about multiculturalism um, means that we miss the actual question around immigration and the actual question around citizenship, which is what should our shared values be? What is it that Britain stands for? What is what what is universalism? What does mm. it mean? Um, you know, I want to get beyond all this kind of um, name-calling around, childish name-calling, around the question of multiculturalism and just have a a better discussion about what it means to be British, what it should mean to be British. And that doesn't mean like everyone thinks toad in the hole and fish and chips. Let's be actually serious about this. And and, um, Did you know, by the way, that fish and chips was not made by an English And next you're going to tell me that St. George was Turkish. Yeah, he's an immigrant or whatever, you know. Or a refugee. Him and all the rest of us. I'm channeling... Otto English. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've, Ella mentioned uh, Leicester. Yeah. So I want. It's. I think it's worth talking a bit about where, you know, where multiculturalism clearly has failed. Where mm. you know where the failure becomes undeniable, mm-hmm. which I don't know. Suello's critics seem to have completely ignored. No, exactly. I mean, that was just over a year ago now, in which you saw groups of Muslim and Hindu 
you're essentially having pitch battles in the streets, um, seemingly, again, the facts on the ground are a little bit sketchy, but seemingly kind of inflamed and kind of informed by communalistic tensions on the subcontinent, kind of exporting them and, yeah. and kind of used, and that was kind of fueling a lot of the conflict. And there you've got a kind of um, a pretty neat encapsulation of what we're talking about here, which is that you've got kids who are born streets away from each other in the same town, um, in the same country, and yet who are, for whatever reason, kind of feeling the need to engage in this kind of sectarianism between one another to take a conflict which is to take issues which are being fought out thousands of miles away from where they actually are and taking that to mean something so deep within their own identity Mm. Um, and that's something which is again what it is that we're talking about Um, and it's something which historically you know this thing about multiculturalism also it's not just like a vibe and a mood it's also something which is a matter of state policy has been for a very long time the author Ken Malik has been always very interesting on this question about how you saw this turn towards treating minority communities as these separate kind of ethnic blocks and the way in which that didn't just turn them against the white British mainstream, it turned them against one another. It be- mm. started to create, break down any kind of solidarity between them, which might have been generated by a shared experience of racism, creating all kinds of sectional cultural battles. Um, many people have traced drawn a pretty direct line between various, say, uh, Muslim organisations which were state-funded as a matter of state multicultural policy, which ended up agitating during the um, Rushdie protests um, for blasphemy to be banned and so on. So there's a straight line between um, state multiculturalism as a policy and the a growing sectarianism amongst Brit- Britain's ethnic and minority communities. And that's something that if you care about living in a diverse society mm. if we're going to use that if we use that terminology then you should be concerned about multiculturalism because its effect and in many cases its intent is to break us up into these boxes and to push us back into our respective corners i think it's important that we don't be apocalyptic about this problem i mean i'm always quite struck and um, fascinated by the fact that i think um integration in britain has progressed great strides have been made almost in spite yeah. of official state multiculturalism and identity politics i think that's, that's a wonderful thing and shows that people are still bristling and agitating against that those divisions which are being artificially created between us uh, but at the same time it is a problem you do need to be able to talk about it and as we've already sort of been touching on i think those people on the more liberal end of the migration discussion it's particularly essential yeah. if you want to maintain and build support for a liberal migration policy to have this sense of universal values and integration at the core of it definitely it's also a problem it's a big problem for immigrants as well yeah. because obviously you know historically you had things like you know all irish people living in finsbury park or kilburn or you know but different uh, ethnic minorities or groups immig- groups of immigrants coalescing and finding solace in you know sticking together because there were issues of racism um and you know problems with integrating but obviously that is not solved by saying okay stick to your area yeah. you know stay in your in your little safe space and don't let anyone else encroach on it or don't you know don't engage with anyone which is what multiculturalism is 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 basically institutionally the idea that you should have siloed sort of Mm. not echo chambers but actually physical spaces where you sort of stay um you know stay separate from people and i can tell you that you know that's not what immigrants want they don't want to come to live in a different country to start a life somewhere and it be exactly the same as where they came from or have no relationships and by the way that doesn't it actually doesn't happen a lot of the time but where it does happen is that there is you know because tensions rise about division and because people feel that there is this sort of pressure on them to not 
you know, tiptoe around each other and not actually authentically engage with each other. The problem just deepens. So if you care about, you know, fighting back against racism or you care about genuine integration, then you can't go along with this idea that sort of it's, it's almost sort of like a separate but equal kind of, it's yeah. terrible. It's harking back to actually a real, what, old school racists used to suggest happen you stay on that side of the block i'll stay on this side and never to the twin to me and in a weird sort of way as well i think you see a reflection of the whole ideology in the treatment of people like braverman and patel it's this idea you're a homogenous group of people yeah. you have mm. certain views you have certain values it's outrageous when you step out of your life i have to say that as you say the kind of hair trigger response of pretty patel or suella braverman when they come out and say something mildly critical of immigration or multiculturalism or whatever is strange on one side because it's the idea that you know if you know any ethnic <laughs> minority people of course there's a divergence of views there's yeah. no one is this homogenous block but it's also it has such a ring to it of almost like the old-fashioned racist who has a go at the ethnic minority politician because they're ungrateful mm. or something that you know how can how dare you talk about multiculturalism given you've so wonderfully benefited from it mm. that there's a really nasty undertone to all of that which i think um can't let escape us definitely with LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. The Battle of Ideas Festival is back. And this year we're in Church House, Westminster on the 28th and 29th of October. And Spiked is going to be there. We've got two sessions, one of the Spiked podcast live with a live audience, a really exciting panel and last orders, both at the festival. Tom and Fraser and I will be there along with lots of other Spiked columnists, people that you've noticed on the podcast and the best thing is that Spiked listeners, readers and viewers get 20% discount on Battle of Ideas Festival tickets. There is so much to talk about when news is changing every day, whether it's impartiality in the media, what's going on in Ukraine, the state of the economy, arts, culture, science, tech. We've got it all. There's something for everyone. So book your ticket as soon as you can and join us on the 28th and 29th of October, Church House Westminster for the Battle of Ideas Festival. So the Centre for Anti-Racist Research, which was set up by Ibram X. Kendi, one of the greatest luminaries from the Black Lives Matter moment, you might say, uh, is starting to fall apart, despite the fact that they've had tens of millions of dollars in donations. They're going to have to lay off around 20 staff, and it seems like they haven't really produced very much work in the past couple of years. And I mean, is this a sign that the sort of, um, you know, the afterglow of Black Lives Matter is is going away? I mean, are people starting to wake up and see what the hell they were spending their money on? <laughs> well, it's interesting that they actually still have quite a lot of money. And it's not necessarily, I read this fascinating um, report on it in the New York Times, which basically put down the failures of this center at Boston University to the fact that people had kind of gone off the boil in relation yeah. to Black Lives Matter. And that mm. actually the problem was there wasn't as much, there isn't as much interest as there was in 2020. And that's why he's having to sack a, a quite a significant number of people from an educational institution, which is like, you know, what, what a kind of get out. But also it went into detail about how Kendi, uh, you know, had gone to the university and said, 
what I want to do is I want this to last basically forever. So I'm yeah. going to trim it right down. And I know we've only put out a number of op-eds, maybe sort of two research papers, despite the fact that we have tens of millions of pounds that have come in from, you know, the ex-head of Twitter, yeah. the sort of, you know, all all these huge celebrities and institutions who've poured money into this. Um, you know, it's basically, it's not really my fault. And, you know, the problem with trying to intellectualize a fundamentally intellectual stance, mm. which is that basically his position is that segregation is the answer to anti-racism. He says, you know, anti-discrimination, uh, you know, discrimination on the basis of anti-racism is the solution to yeah. discrimination on the basis of racism. If you can get your head around that, he's basically saying we've we've got to be mean to each other forever. I mean, yeah. I can really boil it down to that. Um, you know, that isn't an intellectual position and I don't think serious academics would or should engage with that. Um, there's a wealth of um, extremely useful and important, genuinely anti-racist literature, you know, going back many, many years, which you could do interesting research projects on. And, you know, they did have this sort of this funding earmarked for a serious thing around COVID yeah. and trying to, you know, ascertain data around um, how co you know COVID and black people's interaction with it and response to it and all the rest of it failed to do that. Mm. So, you know, on the one level, it's just a kind of basic story of um, – person gets loads of money isn't very good at managing but i think it actually it should it should ask bigger questions about whether or not this is just sort of a plaything for rich people yeah anti-racism and uh you know a lot of the some of the women uh, who have been sacked and one academic in particular is quoted in the new york times as saying you know anti-racism serious issue and it's become this guy's vanity project mm -hmm. basically <laughs> and screw that and you know it's hard it, it's hard to see it as anything other than that and, and tom i mean the thing is when it comes to Black Lives Matter or that movement, this is not exactly a one-off. I mean, people will think of Patrice Cullors and her giant mansion mm. that she seems to have managed to wing out of the Black Lives Matter moment. Yeah, well, technically owned by the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, no, that was the that was a big moment for a lot of people. What was that? A year or so ago. Where essentially in 2020, all this money came flowing in. There was one, um, obviously, Ibram X. Kendi is a kind of uh, someone who rose to prominence in that moment. I don't even mm. like got the position of Black Lives Matter, but then Black Lives Matter isn't even one organization. It's all yeah. kinds of different causes, different groups, some of which bear the name, some of which don't. Um, there was one economist piece at the end of 2020, I think, which estimated that it was something like $10 billion fl flooded in basically to either the big Black Lives Matter organizations or ones that were affiliated to it or connected to it in some sort of way. Yeah. A huge amount of money sloshing around. And yet time and time again, there's been questions about where that money is going. So we're seeing that with Kendi now, as we've been talking about. But again, Black Lives Matter, it's kind of key organization this blm gnf um mm. which was run by patrice colors until relatively recently where again they found out of new york magazine did an investigation they found that this six million dollar mansion had been purchased it wasn't entirely clear um where the money was going in other respects there were all these kind of local chapters of blm who were signing open letters being like what the hell's going on um, yeah, and where, why aren't we seeing any of this money? no exactly and, fund our activities and the, the, you know it's tempting to just sort of dismiss it all as a, as a grift and whatever and there's a large part of that that's quite true but then there's another element to it which is the fact that blm is a very um was a very strange movement insofar as it wasn't really a movement it was very distributed it was very kind of leaderless mm. it was something which didn't have a clear set of articulated demands to the extent that it did a lot of people who might have been on the streets campaigning or protesting um weren't aware that they also wanted to abolish the nuclear family and all these yeah. kinds of things there was this big gap between what the um 
profess the kind of professors and sort of PMC type people who are running the organizations and the people mm. on the ground who were concerned about the issue. Um, and there was also this um, confusion as to what organization is doing what. And there was also this, this fundamental problem that exists with a lot of this anti-racism full stop is that as many other criticisms as you could have of it, it's tendency towards Kendi style um, reverse discrimination, yeah. uh, the essentialism of this movement and whatever. Is that It's also really obsessed with like the symbolic. It's yeah. really obsessed with these hashtags and these statements and whatever. So when it comes down to the, the hard yards of, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to investigate? What policy do you want to formulate? Mm. They haven't really got anything. Yeah, what they've got is a mansion where they can film YouTube videos in, which is essentially what it came down to with BLM. So, I think uh, there's all in this kind of issue of what happened to all that money, what happened to all that goodwill. There's so many reasons for it. But one I definitely underlined is the fact that so much of this is almost like quasi spiritual. It's not really properly yeah. political in that same sense, which is why when all this money comes in, they don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> one of the things, uh, one of the things I was fascinated by is. Um, a lot of the money slashing or sloshing around um, these Black Lives Matter organisations, so much of it went to trans rights mm. stuff, which is, you know, I suppose there's a sort of connection. They're both sort of woke, but I, I imagine that's not what people imagined they were giving money for. Yeah, well, obviously, there's nothing wrong with having, with, you know, f funding and creating a sort of intellectual uh, vanguard for a, for a political movement or, you know, d d making, you know, putting money into research and things like that. Obviously, I'm all, all for that. But there is this disconnect between the fact that a lot of the, you know, <clears throat> particularly with in relation to the reaction to George Floyd, a lot of the murder of George Floyd, a lot of the sort of Black Lives Matter, genuine activism, grassroots, whatever you want to call it, on the street <clears throat> by ordinary black people was about, you know, very localized issues, relationships with the police mm. and things like, you know, you know, almost mundane demands, you know, like I can't get a house, I can't get a job, I'm treated differently, you know, things that weren't going to be solved by a new research center in Boston University or, as Tom says, a kind of hub for creatives in some mansion somewhere. And, you know, you you have to kind of remember that obviously class politics gets forgotten in mm. relation to this. I know it's difficult to talk about that in relation to America, but there is this sort of, you know, this sort of tension, which is that a movement happens around black people in America and racism, which is, you know, got a lot of normal people involved in it who are making very credible and, and sort of normal demands about their quality of life, which I think almost then gets hijacked by a kind of black elite, a black middle class who use it to write books, set up centers and, and make a pretty penny and thank you very much. And that's happened with, you know, feminism, you know, here in the UK and in uh, America, it's happened with gay rights. It's happened with all these kind of movements. Mm. And so just a, a level of skepticism here, I think is necessary among all of us. I don't think we need to go down the sort of who funds you are obsessed with money kind of route, but just a level of kind of critical, critical assessment about where, who who decides that they're speaking for these people? Where does this money go? What does this end up in? Is necessary? I think I think it was funny, you know, looking back on sort of twenty twenty, how quickly the you know you went from really the sort of shocking murder of George Floyd and the question of um, police brutality. Yeah. How quickly that went from actually, well, the solution is more um, black people on television or more diversity on the mm. BBC or whatever it, people, it might be. People were using and abusing or... George Floyd to like talk about literary awards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, getting rid know. of Uncle Ben. Yeah. yeah. From, 
uh, rice packets and things like this. It would never have happened. I'm I'm reading Freddie DeBoer's book at the moment, which is sort of touching on a lot of this stuff. And the examples, you've kind of forgotten about them. Mm. You know, like there was that flurry of cartoon shows in which previously the voice actor had um, been white and the character was black. In one case, the character was half Jewish and half black. She was Jewish, she wasn't half black, therefore Mm. she felt the need to step down. And there's this good line in the book, was like, George Floyd died so that this... Person, this character could be recast. You know, yeah. that's essentially what it did come down to. Um, but I think it's just a reminder that um, Black Lives Matter is a kind of identitarian response to a, um, to a horrendous crime. Uh, was always going to be so lacking because mm. at the same time, it, the primary people who would be interested in it, the primary people who would benefit from it, were always going to be um, the diversity workshop facilitators not the people on the ground and mm. um, the people who are interested in chastising uh, ceos for using the wrong words rather yeah. than actually doing anything meaningful uh, the people whose whole lives are about sloganeering and again language policing and yeah. about uh, intangible issues rather than the more material things that confront people and i think the fact it all given the fact that this movement was so identitarian was so symbolic as i say was so almost detached from people's everyday lives it was always going to make it even more likely that it could be um dominated to such a degree by people who are basically either useless on the take or somewhere in between so i think maybe that's where we've ended up really thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.